0: I must say that it is my privilege to serve alongside some amazing fathers and men who are such strong role models in our church and in our community. You know, public culture will tell us that the role of the father is not that important anymore, but it's the same culture that is falling apart at the seams because fathers are absent. And you know what, in a society where the role of the father is being diminished more and more... Let us be determined to be the standard that God would have for the lead role in the family, fathers that love their wives the way that Jesus loves His church, and fathers that love and protect their children with their own lives and raise their children in the knowledge and fear of the one true God. Let us lead our families in a way that would honor our Father in heaven. Amen? And I want to just honor the dads this morning who have taken their position in this regard biological fathers as well as those that are father's figures and role models to young men and women that don't have their own dads. And if your dad is with you today, or if you get to speak to him later, don't forget to tell him how much he means to you and how much you appreciate him. Dads, we we love and appreciate you all this morning. Amen. Church, today we continue with our series Preaching the Kingdom. And the subtitle for today's message is Principles for Relating to Others. Principles for Relating to Others. If you look up the word principle in the dictionary, it says that a principle is a fundamental truth or proposition that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior. It is a rule or belief governing one's behavior. And I want you to hold on to that meaning as we go through the word this morning. Now, church, we've already seen in this monumental message, the Sermon on the Mount preached by Jesus, that the kingdom of God operates on an entirely different value system to the kingdoms of this world. They are what you could call diametrically opposed. Because since when does the world say, blessed are the poor in spirit? Since when does the world say, blessed are those who mourn and, and those who are meek? And since when does the world say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness? The world doesn't think that way. The world operates on an entirely different wavelength and, and set of values. And there's not a paragraph in this mountain of a sermon that we're studying that doesn't demonstrate the stark contrast between the value system of the kingdom of God and the value systems of this world. And church, as we look at the last few sections here of chapter 5 today, Jesus shows us three particular principles about how His followers are supposed to conduct themselves in a relational way to other people. Yes, a lot of the Bible deals with our vertical relationship with God and getting right with Him, but then there's also a good portion of the Scriptures that also deals with the horizontal, which is our relationship with one another, and not just one another in context of our church, brothers and sisters, one another wherever you go and wherever you have influence uh, from day to day. And that's what this last part of chapter 5 here is all about in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus gives us these important principles about how his followers are supposed to conduct themselves as kingdom representatives, even as they are living in another kingdom. And so let's read what Jesus says about these principles, and then we'll get into the detail of his transformational words. Let's start with principle number one. Beginning in verse 33, it says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, Do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, neither by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because You cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So church, principle number one is the principle of of keeping your word. Very important principle. And this is vitally important because I think you will agree, we are living in a time where it is hard to believe what most people say all the promises that they make. You just go and listen to the news or you go onto social media, right? There are probably a thousand different opinions on, on one issue, and they are all promising that their, their view is the one to go by. We hear promises from our politicians that are very seldomly fulfilled. We hear commitments and promises from our friends, our, our family, and sometimes even our closest loved ones that don't ever materialize. Sometimes we even make commitments and say things and then never follow through. But you see, church, words matter. Promises matter. We need to say what we mean and mean what we say. And while everyone else in our culture might do differently, the followers of Jesus are supposed to behave counterculturally and are supposed to be people of their word. God wants us to be as reliable with our speech as He is. I mean, can you imagine, church, for a moment if all the promises in the Bible were unreliable? If that were the case, you would have no hope for your salvation. You would have no assurance of heaven one day. But thank God His promises are reliable, and we know this because His character is true. Right? In church... What he calls us to when he calls us to be people of our word is to be people of our character. Because to be a man or a woman of your word is really an indication of the character that you carry. That's why it says in verse 37, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. Because there should be enough credibility in our character that we don't need to add additional words to try and bolster what we say. This is why Jesus said, Don't swear by heaven, don't swear by the earth, don't even swear by your own head. Because people in Jesus' day were going around without enough character, and they were making these statements and saying that I swear to you by this and I swear to you by that. And Jesus is trying to teach us that if your character is right, then people should be able to accept yes when you say yes to mean yes and no when you say no to me no but if your character isn't right then you you try to start adding all these other things like i swear to you you know i swear on my life or i promise you well what did we say when we were young cross my heart hope to die stick a needle in my eye right but here's the point. Your character should speak enough for itself that you should just be able to say yes or no and people will know what you mean. The Bible helps us to be men and women of our word and here are a couple of sub points to, to number one. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter five verse two, it says, do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. You see, sometimes we fail to keep our word because we are too quick with our mouths and we haven't really thought it all the way through. Maybe it's because we overestimate our ability to deliver on a promise and we underestimate what it will take to make good on our word. That's why you have that phrase that you should rather underpromise and over-deliver. Sometimes, quite honestly, it's because you want to appease someone because they keep on hassling you about the same thing, so you just throw out a promise to try and get them off your back. Or maybe it's because you're trying to impress someone, so you you just make a promise. Whatever it is, church, if we are too quick with our mouths, we may be setting ourselves up for failure when making commitments or promises. Jesus says, rather don't do that. Let your yes be yes. And you'll know no. Another important thing to be mindful of is that we should always weigh our words. Proverbs chapter 13, verse three says, "He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction." It was Abraham Lincoln that once said, "It is better to keep your mouth shut and let people think you are a fool." than to open your mouth and confirm all their doubts. <laughs> That's quite a good one. It's important to, to weigh your words. Avoid exaggerations and, and superlatives like always and never and absolutely and definitely. You know, we get ourselves in trouble when we say things like, like babe, I will definitely be home at four o'clock after golf this afternoon. Oh, babe, I'll never arrive home late from a ride with the guys this morning. Well, honey, it'll never take me that long to have my hair done. I will see you at your parents at 3 o'clock. And what happens? You find at 4 o'clock and you still hear the hair dryer in the background, right? <laughs> oh, who's heard this one before? Mom or dad, please can I have a dog? I promise you. I will always look after the dog. I will always clean up the mess. Right? Just be honest with your words. Don't make, make these exaggerated statements like, I will always drive the speed limit. Don't lie, you broke it coming to church this morning. <laughs> right? What are you talking about? Rather just say something like, I will attempt to, to watch my speed, or if I, if I do the crime, I will pay the fine. Something like that. Don't offer more than you absolutely need to. So don't be too quick with your mouth. Weigh your words carefully. And then thirdly, underneath this point about keeping your word, it is a good reminder to avoid unrealistic promises. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 5, it is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. And this is important, church, because... False hope is not a good thing for the people's lives that you have an influence in. What I mean by that, it's like me as a father, let's say for instance, I've been called to go to war and I have to sit my family down and I tell them, listen, I'm going to war, but I I tell them, I promise you I'll be back one day. I don't know what's going to happen there. Or it's like you telling your unsaved friends, if you would just give your heart to Jesus Christ, I promise you everything is going to be perfect for the rest of your life. You can't make those promises. And I know the reason why we we say things like that. We want somebody to feel better. We want somebody to, to be hopeful. But we can't give people false hopes or misleading optimism because it's not ours to give, right? Only God knows the outcome. That's why James reminds us of this very thing in James chapter 4. He says, almost in a bit of a, I suppose, sarcastic way, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is but a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Church, Jesus calls us to be men and women of our word. In fact, it says in Proverbs 12, verse 22, that the Lord detests lying lips he hates lying lips but he's he says he delights in people who are trustworthy and you know I've heard it said too often that that people don't want to do business with Christians because they don't deliver on their promises and their commitments they are not people of their word they are not trustworthy And I know that's a generality because some people, you know, they'll have one bad experience with a Christian business person then they'll paint everyone with the same brush. Right? And sometimes they do that because they just say these things because they don't want to become Christians themselves. But unfortunately, church, this can be a true thing in the way that some Christian businessmen handle their affairs. Jesus is calling us to a standard where a yes means yes and a no means no. To be His follower means to be as reliable with our speech as He is. That's the first principle. Number two, the second principle at the end of chapter five, Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. Let's read what He says from verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. In this passage of Scripture, Jesus addresses a a series of mistreatments by others and how we should resist retaliating to these mistreatments. And he mentions when we're sued, when we're insulted, and when someone tries to take advantage of us, this is the way that we need to respond. And church, just to be clear this morning, in the section here when he talks about turning the other cheek, He's not talking that we're t- saying that we should just roll over and let people mistreat or abuse us. Sometimes you might read a section like this in the Bible and you, you think to yourself, really? Are Christians supposed to be just passive and weak and let people walk all over them and take advantage of them because it's the Christian thing to do? That's not what Jesus is saying here. What he is saying, though, church, is that we need to take the steps necessary to to make sure that we don't try to get even. And that we go the extra mile to make sure that bitterness doesn't set in our hearts when it comes to the way that people might mistreat us. That's what he's saying. Remember, as I said earlier, this closing part of chapter 5 is about the horizontal how we are to relate to other people. And what is the way that Jesus wants us to behave when it comes to living in a hostile world? And again, the first thing that Jesus does here is he quotes from the Old Testament law. And this time he quotes directly from Exodus chapter 21 verse 24 where the Mosaic law said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But in the Mosaic law church, that statement was given, it was reserved for the government. It was not meant for the individual. The civil government of the nation of Israel were to impose a penalty consistent with the crime, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. However, the religious leaders of the day hijacked that phrase and said, you know what, that's actually a personal verse for you in relation to how other people treat you or mistreat you. And therefore, if somebody does something wrong to you, you can get even with them. You can get revenge on them. An hour for an hour, a tooth for a tooth, get revenge. And Jesus is going to set the record straight here. He's going to correct that because it was not intended for people to take it in a personal way. And so Jesus says in verse 39, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And let's be honest, is that a verse that you've ever struggled with in your life before as a Christian? Church, when Jesus says this, He did not mean that you cannot defend yourself if someone else physically attacks you. He's not implying that if somebody comes up to you and takes a golf stick and hits you on the right side of your face, that you must just turn the other side and let them bash that side too. When Jesus speaks of a slap on your right cheek, we need to understand, church, that it was culturally understood in his day that a slap was referring to a deep insult, not a physical attack. It was the picture of giving someone a a backhand on, on their right cheek. It was figurative. That's why you get that idiom, a backhanded compliment. And what this means, church, is that if you give someone a backhanded compliment, is that you give them a compliment disguised with an insult. So to be hit on the right cheek was an idiom in the day that meant a deep insult, not a, a physical attack. The phrase had figurative meaning, not literal meaning. And so what Jesus is saying here is that if someone deeply insults you, I want you to just turn the other cheek. I want you to endure the insult and let God defend you. Don't retaliate. That's what he's saying here. I don't want you to return insult for insult. Because I want you to be better than that. He's saying as my follower, if you bear my name as Christian, if somebody insults you, just turn the other cheek, walk away, And let God defend you. Don't try and defend yourself in this way. And just to be clear this morning, Jesus didn't mean that we should just tolerate all kinds of evil. Jesus demonstrated with his own life when he turned over the the tables of the money changers in the temple courtyard, he certainly wasn't tolerant when something was being done in an evil way. But as it relates to the way that he was personally insulted, just think about how he responded to those insults. When you read through the Gospels, you'll see how often Jesus was insulted by other people. He was called a glutton. He was called a a blasphemer. He was called a drunkard. He was called an illegitimate child. He was even called a madman. At church, you'll find many other different examples, but Jesus just allowed the insults to be spoken, and he, he didn't retaliate. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, that He did not retaliate when He was insulted, nor threaten revenge when He suffered. What did He do? He left His case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. So what's the lesson for us Let people say what they want to say. You don't need to respond in like manner. Rather, follow the example of Jesus and let God, who always judges fairly, defend you. Now, church, in that same point here about turning the other cheek, Jesus also says in verse 40, If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Again, in reference to the Mosaic law, this time in Exodus chapter 22, the outer cloak could not be taken from you legally. So in other words, if someone sued you for your tunic, which is kind of like the shirt on your back, you could legally hold onto your cloak. But if you turn to that person and said, listen, you know what, here's my, my shirt, you can have my cloak also, what are you doing? You are disarming them. You're not giving them the power over you to control you or manipulate you. And this by no means suggests that if somebody sues you for money, that you should just, you know what, give them your cars and your house for good measure. No. This is a principle. And the principle is to protect our hearts from retaliation and bitterness. Can you see what Jesus is doing here? In effect, what Jesus is saying is, I would rather you suffer the loss of all your property than to suffer the effects of vengeance and retaliation. He's saying to us, church, that it's better to be empty of everything you own than to be full of bitterness. And to make sure we're guarding our hearts against bitterness and vengeance and retaliation, we have to do things out of the ordinary. We have to do things counterculturally. It's the same kind of principle in the next couple of verses because it says in verse 41 and 42 And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now, as most of you know, during the, the time of Jesus' ministry, Israel was under Roman occupation, the Roman Empire ruled this territory. And under Roman law, a Roman soldier could tap a Jew on the shoulder living in Israel and demand that he carry his supplies for one mile. Right? So whether the Israeli Jew liked it or not, he was forced to do so under the law. But he also knew that once he had completed his one mile, he could immediately stop because he had done his duty. So it would be a resentful thing for you to be made to carry a soldier's gear for a mile Because you would feel taken advantage of. But here Jesus says, you know what? If they asked you to go one mile, go with them too. I mean, why would you want to do that? I didn't want to go the first mile. Why would I now want to go the second one with them? Well, church, because when you do something like that, you are doing something out of love rather than spite, and you are preventing resentment from getting the upper hand in your heart. And you know what, when you look at some of these principles and some of these things that that Jesus says to us, you know, it doesn't really make much sense to our flesh, does it? Because to our flesh, it makes sense to want to get even. In our flesh, you know what, it makes sense to want to settle the score. In our flesh, we want to make sure that nobody takes advantage of us. And so we go to great lengths to protect ourselves, to get vengeance on somebody else who has wronged us. But what Jesus is saying, in church, is that I want you to be better than that. I want you to be above that. I want you to go the second mile. Why? Because it will help guard your heart against bitterness. I want you to do something out of the ordinary. I want you to love in a way that will disarm others from having power and control over you. I want you to do things that may not be popular and may not even make a lot of sense to you, but I want you to do these things as a way of honoring me. And in the process of honoring me, you're going to protect your own heart from becoming resentful and bitter towards others. Does that make sense, church? The third principle that Jesus tells us here in chapter 5 is to love your enemies. Let's have a look at this from verse 43. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Just to stop there for a moment, the Old Testament actually never said the second part. Because in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, Love your neighbor as yourself. It never said hate your enemy. Again, what happened here, at church, is that the religious leaders of the day took that verse, that Old Testament verse, and misapplied it. And they said, well, if you, know, if you love your neighbor, those people that you get along with, I guess that means we get to, we get to hate our enemies. And Jesus comes along and he says, I don't want you to hate your enemies. In fact, he says in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than the others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So, first, the Mosaic Law did not say that you could hate your enemy. It just said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And secondly, the word enemy here is a broad term, but it basically means people who might criticize you or mistreat you. And I want you to notice here in verse 44, when he tells us to love our enemies, that word love is the word agape. An agape church, as we know, is the highest and most supreme kind of love that we can only know and experience and offer when we have relationship with Jesus. Because that's where our love comes from, right? So get this, when He tells us to love our enemies, to love people who criticize, mistreat, or insult us, He is calling us to this highest kind of love, to this agape kind of love. And in order to love someone who mistreats you or insults you in some way, it will require a love that will not come from yourself. This is a love that can only come from a relationship with Jesus. Because when you experience this kind of love from God toward you, then you will be able to express this love of God toward others. And here's the point. The idea of loving your enemy is not what he or she does against us. It is the idea of loving their soul. Church, and I want you to think of it this way. This is important for all of us to understand. At one point before any of us became a Christian, right? If you are here today and you are a Christ follower, before you became a Christian, right? You were an enemy of God. And you may say, but pastor, you know what? I wasn't that bad. Right? I was a a relatively good person. I was somewhere in the middle. No church. You're either for Him or you're against Him. You're either with Him or you are opposed to Him. You either gather with Jesus or you you scatter abroad. Right? There, There is no gray area. Church, all of us before coming to know Christ, all of us were opposed to God. And yet He... Loved our souls so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on a cross for us. So while we were enemies toward God, he still loved us. He loved our souls. He didn't love what we did. He didn't love our behavior. He didn't love our actions. But he died for that because he loved our souls. That's the kind of love that he calls us to. And that's really what Jesus is saying in this last part of Matthew chapter 5. Because church, as I start to close this morning, how do you really conduct yourself in a relational way that will impact and influence others, especially when those others are mistreating you, when they are insulting you? You love their souls. You love their souls so much that you will be a man or a woman of your word. You will be a man or a woman of of integrity and character. You love their soul so much that you'll be willing to turn the other cheek if they insult you and go the second mile with them so that your heart remains pure towards them and to other people, that you don't close off your heart. You love their soul so much the way that God loves their soul that you would love your enemies, bless those who curse you, Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And church, I know this is a high calling. But this is what Jesus calls his kingdom representatives to. And if we can love in this way, if we can behave in this way, if we can love counter-culturally, we can turn our thinking up on the side of its head, something like that, can you imagine the impact that, that we'll have? It says in the scriptures that we will be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. And Jesus says here in verse 48, Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that word perfect means to be whole. It means to be complete. It means, it means to be mature. Church, is it going to be easy? No. Right? Is it possible? Of course, with God, all things are possible. Amen. Amen. God is calling us to be completely counter And you know what? It, just, it, it requires a shift in our thinking. But this is what He calls us to. Can we receive God's Word this morning, church? Yes. Can we thank the Lord for His Word?